Thank you, worship team, for your outstanding leadership this morning. What a great uh, Christ-centered worship set. Grateful for that. Going to uh, continue in our worship now with some uh, time in the Word. Before that, I want to—I have a confession to make to you. You know, they say confession is good for the soul, right? I've got this confession. The last, uh, the last four weeks, as I've been up here preaching, um, I realized I'm having a hard time reading the words in my Bible. It's kind of blurry to me. So I got home and my, my oldest son uh, said, Dad, it looks like you're, you're squinting when you're, you're reading the Bible. What, what's going on? I thought, you know, maybe it was the lights or the angle or the glare or whatever. I realized my eyes are just getting old. And uh, so I did something this week I never ever thought I would do. Um, I had Terry Pruitt, who's our office administrator, order for me a large print Bible. A lar- I'm 47 years old. I need a large print Bible already. It's not a giant print. There's a difference between a large print and a giant print. But uh, you'll see me next week with my new large print Bible. And uh, I bring that up so that we never, ever have to talk about this in person, okay? This is, uh, I want to get that off my chest. We're uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. Let me pray and we'll get into the text. Father, we are grateful this morning that we worship and serve a risen Savior. And we're thankful that in Christ we have everything we need, both emotionally, uh, spiritually. Lord, we, we, we don't need to seek the approval of men or women. We don't need to show the world that we're worth being loved. In Christ we have your approval and your acceptance, not because we deserve it, but because Christ is deserving and perfectly obedient in every way and died for us on the cross, was buried and raised again, Lord, for as the evidence that his sacrifice was enough. Father, help us to see the beauty of Christ this morning. Help us to to be so enthralled with your glory and your majesty that our, our hearts overflow and our tongues are eager to speak of your salvation. Uh, work in and through us, we pray by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning we're in uh, week five of a six-week series called First Things, and kind of what I said at the beginning is I want to try to establish, lay the the groundwork, uh, uh, look at some of those pillars of the Christian faith, some of those commitments that a faithful church clings to and and holds on to. In a couple weeks we're going to begin a a verse-by-verse series through First Timothy, looking at the text in its context. We call this an expositional series. But for the last four weeks, and then this week and next week, we're establishing these pillars of the church. And here's what we've looked at. Glory, in order to reveal His glory, uh, the weight of His manifold perfections, in other words, the beauty of God's character, Uh, God brings people into a relationship with Himself through the power of the gospel. And then he places those very people into a community of believers where they worship God through their daily lives, but they gather to worship him corporately as one body. Then they go out on mission, and as they do so, they are emboldened by prayer. And so, of course, there are other foundational truths, and I'm not saying this is all there is, but I wanted to kind of establish this uh, foundation as we move forward. I read this statement by Mike Cosper this week in his book on worship, which I thought really capture the essence of what we're getting at. Getting at. Cosper said this, it's a gospel rhythm, sent and gathered, always worshiping and regularly worshiping together, 
with the story of the gospel throbbing in our regular rhythms. This is who you are. This is your God. This is your story. It's a life-giving and community-giving pulse. And when the gospel is at the center, remembered, declared in unity, and displayed in the church's worship, it's a rhythm of grace. And so that's, that's, that's kind of a summary statement. We're, we're gathered and then sent. We encourage one another. When we come together, we're edified and strengthened around the gospel, the word of God. And then we go out with this message. That brings us to our fifth point this morning, our fifth pillar, and that is mission. So uh, we're going to be covering 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. I'll just read the text, and then we'll try to unpack it together. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, this is the Apostle Paul, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing in, in the letter that we know as 2 Corinthians. It was actually, this was actually the fourth letter that he wrote to this church at Corinth that he established during his second missionary journey. Uh, there was another letter that Paul wrote that we don't have. This is called the Lost Letter. Um, it's not extant, as they say. We don't have that. And then there was a, another letter, which was called the severe letter, which was very corrective in nature, and we don't have that either. We have what we know as First and Second Corinthians. And Second Corinthians was written to this church at Corinth that Paul had spent extended time with. Um, but when he left, these false teachers uh, crept in, and they started to spread false teaching, false doctrine. And along with that, they were attacking the Apostle Paul, his character, uh, his ministry, his teaching, his apostolic authority. And so 2 Corinthians, which is what we're in now, uh, is, is really Paul's defense of his own ministry, of his own calling. Um, but it's more than that. It was a call for this church to get back on mission. What is the antidote to a church that persists in infighting? It's mission, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of hard to argue about or, or debate about what people wear or sort of the loudness of the songs or whatever it is when you look outside and you see that there's a world that doesn't know Jesus. So the solution, the antidote to infighting the church, at least one solution, is to recapture mission. So Paul's plea for this church is to get back on mission. He discusses a little bit about his own personal transformation he says in verse uh, 17, or he says, we used to regard people according to the flesh, but not anymore. Uh, then he reminds uh, in verse 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now that phrase, in Christ, has atomic significance. It's hard to overstate how important, how significant, how vital that particular phrase is. And I say that because one reason, so much of our lives is spent trying to establish an identity, isn't it? Trying to kind of figure out 
who we are and, and, and where we fit and show the rest of the world who we are. It's, it's why we dress the way we dress. It's why we speak the way we speak. We want to, we want to find a place to belong. We, we want to show a certain group of people that we fit. We want to fit in a, in a certain group. And so any number of things can be regarded as identity-defining. In fact, uh, you can find out maybe if, if someone were to ask you the question, who are you really? Or maybe they, maybe they ask you differently. They say, why don't you describe yourself? If I ask you the question, who are you? You might say, I'm a cancer survivor. I'm a widow. I'm an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic, a divorcee. I'm a mom. I'm an African-American. I'm a doctor. I'm a veteran. I'm a high school student. I'm an athlete. I mean, there are any number of things that we, we look to that help to define our identity. In fact, I served as a chaplain for a Division I men's basketball program and did this for a number of years. And what really stood out to me is in the locker room, when, when the players are together, they really had people divided into athletes and non-athletes. And anytime someone's name came up, it would say, was well, that person an athlete? In other words, did they play a sport at this university? We look at a variety of things to, to help sort of define our identity or to locate our identity in. Uh, it may be your experience. It may be your for men, a lot of times, of course, it's our vocation, it's our career. It may be uh, your education, your race, your interests, whatever it is. But what Paul wants these believers to know, and us by extension, is who you are at the most fundamental level. More important than your background, more important than your education, more significant than your race, more vital than your, your career. Who you are at the most fundamental level really has little to do with what you've done. And everything to do with what's been done for you, what someone else has done for you, if you have received Christ. The best description for who we are this morning as a church is a simple two-word phrase that Paul uses so often in his letters, even here. Here's what it is. It's our first point this morning. The essence of who we are is best and most accurately captured by one phrase. We are in Christ. In Christ. If you've turned from your sins, you, you've believed in Jesus, you, you put your faith in the cross work of Jesus Christ, God's Son, then what you are at the core, what you are really that trumps everything else, you are in Christ. It's a phrase that the New Testament writers use more than 200 times. We, we are found in Christ, Philippians 3. We are preserved in Christ, Romans 8. We are sanctified in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1. We live in Christ, Galatians 2. We walk in Christ, and I could go on and on, 200 some references to this phrase, in Christ. Theologically speaking, the term for being in Christ is our union with Christ. And our union with Christ is a reference to all the things that, because of Jesus, all the benefits that are mediated to us through Jesus Christ. So above everything else in your life, your education, your career, your background, your family, your history, your looks, your race, your athleticism, whatever it is, this is what you are first and foremost. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. Now, I realize that's it's kind of an awkward way, I guess, if someone asks you about yourself to say, well, I'm, I'm in Christ. I've, I've realized uh, over the years that, that when I tell people what I do, that I'm a pastor, it kind of may, it puts people in, in kind of an awkward place. It makes them nervous. Um, I get some strange looks from people when they ask me what I do, and I've had this a lot even since I've been here in these last four weeks. When I first became a pastor, I was pretty stunned at, at, at how some people treated me 
when they found out what I did. We had a sweet couple that lived across the street from us and uh, when we were in Indiana. They didn't know anything about church or Jesus. And over time, through our prayer, through our relationship, God would bring them to saving faith. Just an awesome story. But one day early on, we, we just moved in. The lady, uh, the lady came and said to Janine, I saw your husband out mowing the lawn today uh, with shorts on and a hat. And Janine was like, she didn't really know where this was going. She said, oh, okay, okay. She said, I've never seen a pastor mowing his lawn. He just, he looks so normal. And I don't know what she thought. I guess she thought I put a suit on. I grabbed my large print Bible and I went out and just sort of conquered the lawn for Jesus. I, I don't know what she was expecting, but for her, like she couldn't believe that I was out mowing the lawn. Like I didn't know pastors did kind of normal things like that. She was kind of really, she was nervous around me for the first six months that we lived there. She didn't know what to say. I was at a high school uh, football game last, last fall, and, and I, I went with Janine. We sat kind of in the, in the middle section, and all the people above us are laughing. They're having a blast. They're, they're yelling. They're cheering. And one of the guys in that section was a, a member of the church that I served, and, and so he yelled, Pastor John, Pastor John, let me introduce you to my friend. So he introduced me, and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm the pastor at this church, and the rest of the football game, it was like we were in a hospital. No one cheered. No one laughed. They were just nervous the whole time. And I guess if, if me telling people that I'm a pastor causes discomfort, imagine if you say to someone, they ask you about yourself, well, I'm in Christ. I mean, it's kind of an odd thing to say. But the reality is, this is who we are at the most fundamental level. If you are a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are in Christ. That means you belong to Jesus. He is your Savior and Lord. He is your treasure and your King. He is always interceding for you, praying for you at the right hand of the Father. You belong to Him and He belongs to you. You are in Christ. And all of the things that, that He won by virtue of His perfect obedience, His righteous record, they're now yours by faith. They belong to you. And the fact that you're in Christ is something that will never change. What we've done can never change that, not even our past. What someone else says cannot change that. Where we live, how we earn a living, how many children we have, what we do, none of those things can change who we truly are. We're in Christ. And Paul says, if we are in Christ, he says, we are a new creation. Now, you know, the New Testament, most of the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and this is kind of a, this is a, a, a grammatical uh, a very difficult sentence here grammatically. It literally reads, if any in Christ, new creation. And so the question then comes up, well, what exactly is the new creation? And I think um, some people say, well, this is a reference to the sort of God's cosmic renewal of all things. And I think that's certainly part of it. I don't think it has to be an, an either or. I think it's a both and. It's, it's a reference to God in Christ making new everything that's wrong with the world. All the things that are broken because of sin, God is renewing in Christ. But I think given the context, that is the crucified and risen Christ as the divine agent of salvation, we have to see it also as a reference to regeneration, what we know as the new birth. For those who are in Christ, they experience a new birth. They are recreated. See, only God can create something out of nothing. Now, we're image bearers of God, and so... We've been called to fill out this cultural mandate, the early chapters of Genesis, and use our creativity. But only God can take something that was dead, something that wasn't, was in a dead space and make it alive. And this is what happens when he makes someone alive in Christ. What happens is if you look at your life as a spectrum, 
So you have birth and kindergarten and grade school and then high school graduation and maybe college, marriage, career, whatever it is. If you look at your life as a spectrum, then what it means is at some point in your life, at some point along the way, and for some of you, maybe it was when you were five, six, seven years old. And I know for some of you, it was when you were in your 30s or 40s. At some point in your life, God worked in such a miraculous and powerful way that he made you alive in Christ. He, he, he made you a new creature. He gave you the ability to respond to him in repentance and faith. He caused you to be one of his own. He brought you to a place of brokenness where you cried out to him. If not literally, you at least knew you had no other hope for salvation except for Christ and his work on the cross. And at that moment, God made you alive. He made you a brand new creature. You were given a new identity. You went from being a rebel and an outcast and being condemned by God, estranged from him, to being a child of God, to being a forgiven sinner. This is a miracle of God's grace. Identity is not earned. It's not established through hard work. We don't become who we are by succeeding at work or home or climbing the corporate ladder, identity is given. And since it's given, it can never be taken away. So regardless of what you do or fail to do, you will remain a child of God because God keeps those who belong to him. He keeps those that he, make, he makes alive. Now look at what happens next, the last part of verse 17. The text says, the old has passed away Behold, the new has come. Well, what is the old? The old refers to all the things that were part of the old man, life in Adam. It doesn't mean that, okay, we no longer struggle with sin. Of course not. We still struggle with sin. In fact, I, I remember reading R.C. Sproul once said that life doesn't begin to get complicated until the new birth. Because then there's this, there's this very difficult battle. We want to please God. Our heart actually is inclined. We want to bring God glory. But well, we have this baggage of the flesh, which is we, we, we sin and we, we follow our sinful desires. The old refers to all those things that were part of the old life. doesn't mean that our personalities change, but what we love the most changes. We find meaning and satisfaction in different things. There was a great, uh, one of my favorite theologians, uh, Augustine, fourth century theologian. He struggled with lust. I mean, just, I mean, he was just desperate, struggled with lust and envy and sexual temptation. And he tried to find pleasure and, and, and meaning in these things. And it was so empty for him. He was miserable. And God ultimately brought him to himself. And Augustine said this, how sweet all, it was, all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. What Paul says is, when he says the old is gone, he's talking about, he's talking about our, our, our self-reliance, our love for ourselves, our love uh, for sin, our autonomy from God, our insistence on finding meaning apart from God. All of that's gone, he says. He says, the new has come. Well, what's the new? The new represents everything that corresponds to new life in Christ. It's a new love. It's a new affection. It's a new goal. So now our goal is to glorify and honor God. But I think at the deepest level, it's a new trust. No longer do we look outside 
uh, we, do we look inside rather for salvation, thinking it's about sort of cleaning myself up or finding that inner strength or inner beauty? No, we look outside for salvation. We know that if I'm actually going to be forgiven, if I'm going to be delivered, it has to come from without. It can't come from within. It's a new trust. It's a new faith. The person who's been made alive looks outwardly toward Christ for salvation instead of inwardly toward self. Because he knows that he can only be made right with God by a miraculous act from God. And this is what Paul is talking about in verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. To be reconciled is, is to be made right. It's to, take, it's to bring into agreement to two parties or two elements who are at odds with each other. Sometimes in my role in Southern California as a pastor, I was asked to be a mediator between parties in the community. And so I would meet with folks in my office and in the evening, and this happened a few times where there are two, two uh, people or parties that were at odds with each other, and they called on me to be a mediator. Now, it was only the Spirit of God that would, you know, would bring two parties together. This is, this is what reconciling means, reconciliation. Reconciling means, means fixing something that was broken. And, and accountants know this. To reconcile a loss or a debt, you can't just erase it, pretend like it doesn't exist. It has to be transferred to another account. I don't know. Is that right, Dusty? Am I on track here? Yeah, see, Dusty knows. If you're, if you're in that financial world, right, you know if you have a loss or a debt, you can't just pretend like it doesn't exist. It has to be transferred to another account. And so this is what God does in his reconciling work. When Jesus died on the cross, our debt, our moral debt, our sin debt was transferred over to Jesus' account. Our moral debt, our rebellion, our defiance, our shame, all that was put on him on the cross. And his righteous record, his perfect record, was actually transferred over to us by faith. We sinned, we rebelled, we demanded to be free from God's authority. And Jesus took all the punishment for us. 16th century German theologian Zacharias Urson has said it this way. He said, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Now here's what this means this morning for you and me. Regardless of what you've done in your past, if you are in Christ, what you've done doesn't define you. And maybe you have, and maybe this was just a Southern California thing, but I had, I had men and women who come to me and say, nobody else knows what I've done. Maybe you have something in your past that nobody else knows, not even your spouse. But I want you to know this morning, if you're in Christ, your past does not define you. Your past doesn't determine who you are. And not only that, what others have done to you doesn't define you. You have been, been given a new status, a new identity. Whatever it is you've done, you're not that anymore. You're not ultimately an adulterer, a divorcee, a liar, a dropout, a pornography addict, a failed, whatever. That's not who you are. And that's not who I am. We are first and foremost children of the living God. We are beautiful to the God who made us because of the work of Christ. You are 
a treasured son or daughter. Your slate has been wiped clean. You are righteous because of Christ. And this also means because our identity is linked to Christ's performance, we don't have to pretend to be perfect all the time. We don't have to pretend to have it all together. Uh, a few years ago, one of my daughters was eight years old, really young, and we got in the car after church, as we tend to, and we were on our way home, and, and my daughter said, Daddy, I want to tell you something that, uh, I won't say his name, but well, it was a good thing, so that uh, the, the, uh, this uh, Pastor Steve said to me, and she told me that one of our elders had pulled her aside and very tenderly said to her, I want you to know that I don't look at you differently because you're a pastor's kid. Being a pastor's kid doesn't mean you have to act differently. doesn't mean you have to have it all together. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. You're going to mess up and you're going to blow up, but that's okay. You're a child of God, and that's what makes you valuable and precious. So just be yourself. You don't have to live under this microscope. You don't have to pretend like every moment you're, you're thinking spiritual thoughts and you have it all together. No, it's okay. It's okay. You belong to God. You are a child of God. And I was so moved that, that one of our elders would just pull aside my daughter and just encourage her in that way. It's so true. If you're in Christ, you're not judged by your performance. You are reckoned righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. And with it, we have a new, not only a new identity, but a new purpose. Verse 18, Paul says, God reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling to the world to himself and entrusted to us the, the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, or in light of everything that God has done, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Here's our second point this morning. To be in Christ is to be on mission, called and empowered to share with others the good news of God's forgiveness. So if you are in Christ, you are on mission. And that mission, reconciliation, remember, equals forgiveness. Reconciliation equals forgiveness. So you are on a mission to share the good news with others of God's forgiveness. In June of 1936, Ernest, Hemis, Ernest Hemingway, who's a Nobel Prize winner, novelist, uh, published a short story called The Capital of the World. Now, this is one of his least known uh, stories, but it's still very powerful. And uh, Hemingway wrote over 70 stories, and, and maybe you've uh, read some in your high school literature class, or maybe just through your personal reading. Um, but this story of the capital of the world tells, tells the uh, account of Paco, who was a handsome young man around 19 years old, who takes a bus to Madrid, Spain, to, ex to escape the poverty of his hometown. It's in a place that's just, I mean, it's desperate. Things are destitute, and so he gets on a bus to go to Spain to escape his current surroundings. And he waits tables at a local restaurant there in Madrid. But what he really wants to do is be a bullfighter, a banderiero. So when he sees the matadors coming in the restaurant, he envies their courage and their prestige. And he's waiting on tables. He's doing his job. But he really wants to be a bullfighter. That's all he thinks about. At least it's almost all he thinks about. He also thinks about his father, his estranged father, with whom he's had no contact for a very long time. They've been separated, separated for years because of this terrible conflict they went through. So Paco thinks about his father. Well, as the story goes in Hemingway's little novelette, uh, Paco's father comes to Madrid searching for his estranged son. 
And he looks everywhere, but he, he can't find him. He's looking all around the city. He, he's heard that his son is in Madrid, but he can't find him. So finally, in an act of desperation, the father places an ad in the local newspaper, which reads, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montaña, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. Well, when the father arrives at the hotel on Tuesday afternoon, he's absolutely stunned. He cannot believe his eyes. A crowd of 800 young men, all named Paco, are there, awaiting his, revival, his arrival, and each one desperate for a clean slate. The crowd is so large that Spain's National Guard has to be called in to disperse the young men. Now, Ernest Hemingway was not a Christian as far as I know, but he understood something. He understood that deep in the heart of every human being is a longing for forgiveness. Certainly horizontal forgiveness. That is, we, if, if you're in a relationship right now and, there's, and you're estranged from someone, you know the burden it places on you. But deep in the heart of every person is a longing, a yearning to be forgiven. This vertical forgiveness, to be forgiven by the God who created them. The lack of forgiveness destroys people. It destroys relationships. It brings about all kinds of physical ailments. It destroys us emotionally. And here we are, Paul says, we've been called to be ministers of reconciliation. That is to say, we are called to tell people this good news about forgiveness. We're communicating a message that says you can be right with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So often I think we communicate the message in a way that's really not fitting for the gospel. Namely, we persuade other people to clean up their lives, to make changes to their behavior, to stop their cursing or smoking or sleeping around. And there's a place for believers telling other believers, pointing them to Scripture and pointing out the error of their ways. But so often we go around telling those who know nothing about God or Christ, those who are unbelievers, to get their act together. That's not good news, though, is it? We're entrusted with the news of telling people there is a God, and He can be known. They can be right with the God who made them. They can be totally forgiven. Everything they've ever committed, every sin, every grievance, every offense, totally wiped clean because of the power of the work of Jesus. Eric Sorensen is a church planter in New York City. I sometimes check out uh, his uh, Twitter account. He's a guy who moved from Fontana, California, which is where, very close to where I was for eight years, to Manhattan to plant a, a gospel-centered church. And so he's right in the middle of Manhattan. And he said, you know, one of the things that I like to do in coffee shops or as I meet people is I ask them, what do you think about Christianity? Like, what, if you were to boil it down to one particular thing, he said, what, what, what is Christianity? What does it mean to you? Said he, asked, he said he's asked people that many, many times. And he said he almost always gets an answer that mentions some form of morality or behavior change. In other words, he, said, he said what I almost always get is Christianity is about not doing this, but instead doing more of this. He said, I've never once, never once heard someone say it's about forgiveness. But that's really at the heart of Christianity because Jesus came and lived a perfect life because he died on the cross for our sins and our rebellion. We can now be forgiven by trusting in his work, by believing on him. This is what Christianity is about. It's about forgiveness. It's about being right with God because of the beauty and the splendor and the sufficiency of Jesus' work. 
It's about God forgiving our sins, verse 19, not counting them against us. It's about God making right what's wrong with all this, this whole world through the crosswork of his son, through whom, verse 21, we receive the very righteousness of God. God not only forgives us, he gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. God not only wipes out our moral debt, he credits our account with every good thing in Jesus. Love, hope, approval, a future inheritance, complete and total acceptance by God. And because this is such great news, we're actually called to be ambassadors. Verse 20, Paul says, now what is an ambassador? An ambassador is an official representative of someone else. An ambassador goes to other places, countries, regions, cultures with information on behalf of someone else. And that's what we are as believers. Certainly Paul's talking about himself and he's defending his own ministry, but he's extending it to every single person who is in Christ. We are ambassadors. We are Christ's representatives going to places with news from our sender. Now, not everybody has to go. Not everybody has to go, that is, to a foreign country. Not everybody has to go to a foreign culture. But everybody has to be a messenger with this good news. So maybe for some of you, maybe God's calling you to go cross-culture. He's calling you to go somewhere else in the world where people have not heard the good news of Jesus. But even if he's not, he's already called you, if you're in Christ, to be his ambassador. He's called you to be his very spokesman. So your conversations, my conversations, should be littered with good news, pointing people to Jesus Christ. And I have to be very candid with you. As I prepared this sermon and prayed over it, it was convicting to me, very convicting. And I asked myself the question, how often am I being a dispenser of good news? But this is what God has called us to be. God does the work, but he does so, Paul tells us, through us. Notice how many times the apostle points to this tension. God is the one doing the work, but it's, again, through us. Verse 18, all this is from God, who's given us this ministry. Verse 19, God is reconciling the work, entrusting us with this message. Here's our final point this morning. The message is the means by which God will save those who respond to it. In other words, the power is God's alone. So God's the one who has the power. God's the one who does the saving. But he actually chooses to do so through us. Through our message, through our meager efforts, God brings people to saving faith. This is why Paul would say in a different letter, he says, he talks about the power of the gospel. And he says, well, how are people going to hear unless they're told? How are they going to be told unless someone is sent? The means, the message is the means that God will use to bring some to saving faith. God does the work, but for a reason known only to himself, he's decided to save people, to reconcile people to himself through us, through the message that he's entrusted to us. And because it's a message, it has to actually be spoken. A message has to be communicated. Have you ever heard of this very popular saying, well, it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and no one knows if he actually really said it or not. But he says, I've heard this so many times, uh, preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. Well, that sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, that's something I want to put on my mirror in my bathroom. I preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. But actually, it's not 
very theologically accurate. Now, I understand what he's saying. Yeah, if, if we go out and we're telling people about Jesus, but our lives are disgusting in their self-centeredness and their anger and whatever it is, yeah, that's not good. But the gospel is news, and news has to actually be spoken. I love what uh, Al Mohler, who's a Baptist leader and author, says. He says, there are those who would like to believe that we can bring the gospel near just by being there, by being kind, just, righteous, loving. But the reality is, even though we're called to be all of those things, and there are signs of the gospel, the gospel requires articulation. The gospel requires words in order to be heard, received, or even rejected. So yeah, we want to live in such a way that people are attracted to Jesus, but we still have to tell people about Jesus. We still have to articulate this message. So here's what I believe Paul is saying. As believers, we have been given a message by God. It is a message of forgiveness that centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the message must get out. The message must get out. We have a divine mandate to spread the good news, especially to people who have not heard it. This is the essence of the Great Commission. Some people will go to distant lands. Some people will go to their lockers at school. Some people will go all the way to a foreign country where no one has ever heard. Unreached people groups. Some people will simply go across the street to their neighbor. But everyone has been entrusted with a message. And the message is you can be made right with God because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. Now you say, well, you spent most of the time here talking about uh, who we are in Christ and, and just a little bit of time about the, the mission, the message. Well, I want you to notice what Paul does. Notice the progression in this passage. Paul goes from who we are to what we've been called to do and then back to who we are. You see that pattern. What God has done is followed by what God calls us to do. It's what we call the indicative imperative rhythm. The indicative is just a word just indicates what it's been done. So if I said to you, the first thing that popped in my mind, the cat is on the rug. That, that, that's an indicative. That indicates what's been done. If I said to you, I don't know why I'm talking about cats right now, but if you, if I, it just popped in my head. If I said, take the cat outside, right? That's an imperative. So the indicative is what's been done. The imperative is what we must do. Must do. And we see this rhythm throughout the scripture. The imperatives follow the indicatives. God only tells us what to do after he reminds us of all he's done for us. And he does the same thing here. We have been loved, and now we're called to show love. We have been redeemed, now we're called to be agents of redemption. We have been made new, and now we're called to showcase this newness in Christ. We have been saved, now we're called to tell others of this salvation. Now, let me draw this thing to a close by, by asking and answering this, answering this question. How do we create a culture where people are eager to tell the good news? Well, let me say this to you. It's not by being told over and over and over to go tell someone about Jesus. Now, that, that's important. I mean, we, we have to know these things, right? But that's not the way a culture is created. The answer is we have to believe and celebrate and delight in the good news ourselves. That's how we create a culture. We'll never be a church that's active in telling people the good news just by, simply, by me getting up here every week and telling you to do so. We have to hear the stories of God's power and salvation again and again and again. And we have to constantly consider and remind ourselves of his love for us in Christ while we didn't deserve it, while we should have been cut off forever, while we were separated from God as, as enemies. 
Christ died for the ungodly. See, a person who has been loved deeply can't stop talking about the love he's experienced. A person who has been forgiven of something just absolutely heinous, they can't stop telling other people about the forgiveness they've received. A person who has been pardoned for a terrible crime can't stop telling other people about the freedom he has been given. I was riding in the car the other day, five hours with a young man, and, uh, and all he wanted to talk about was his girlfriend and how much she loved him. She, he just kept talking about, how, I'm, I'm so undeserving. I mean, I'm so blessed by God to be loved this way. And he just kept telling me the things she was doing and the way that she loved him and the sacrifice. And he just talked the whole time. Five hours driving around these roads and through Alabama up in Tennessee talking about his girlfriend and how she loved him. This is what happens when we start to understand at the soul level how much we are loved by God in Christ. We want to tell somebody. I got to tell somebody. How much I've been loved, i got to share with somebody the way that God has poured out his affection on me in Jesus. May God help us to be that kind of church. Let's pray.